Uh, Exodus, I say 32 is where we're going to be looking at today, but remember the context. All right, Moses had been up on the mountain now for these some 40 days, the people growing impatient. Uh, and that led to this famous golden calf incident. They go to Aaron. They uh, implore Aaron concerning uh, the whole situation. Aaron takes matters into his own hands. Uh, remember, the authority of Aaron was only uh, as he spoke what Moses told him to speak. But now Aaron, on his own, uh, takes matters into his own hand, being pressured by the people. And we have the construction then of this golden calf. At the very time, and this is generally how it works, uh, we, we grow impatient, we grow uh, so uneasy in waiting upon the Lord. Uh, that very often we take matters, I say, into our own hands, uh, go our own way, and so many times that seems to happen on the very eve, the very moment when God was about to show himself. Uh, Moses was on his way down. All right? Moses indeed was on his way down when all of this happened, and he sees the people uh, going through all of the idolatry, all of the uh, licentiousness that had associated itself with this worship of the golden calf, uh, corrupting themselves completely. Moses breaks uh, the stone tablets that God had uh, given to him, uh, and then the Lord announces, and this is where we left off last week uh, at verse 10, uh, the Lord seeing the sin of these people, the idolatry of these people, uh, is ready to exercise his just wrath and just discipline against them. Uh, and uh, he tells Moses now just to leave him alone, he was going to consume them and told Moses that I will make of you a great nation. Now, the amazing thing to me, and this is, I say, what we want to focus on for a few moments today. There's things in this chapter now after this that I find very difficult uh, to understand. But it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful illustration of the power of intercession. Uh, of the man of God here with the Lord concerning this one particular issue. But going far beyond that, uh, it gives us some vital lessons and vital reminders concerning the power and the glory uh, and the success of the intercession uh, of Christ in behalf of his people. So as we look at a few things here, and I want to make four or five statements concerning this prayer of Moses, the reasoning of Moses here with the Lord uh, concerning this golden calf sin, uh, and let it speak to us of the intercession uh, that Christ evidences constantly for us, uh, for us, his people. I say God was justly uh, ready to condemn these people. The promise given to Moses, I will make of you a great nation. I think I noted last week uh, that in that promise to Moses, there would have not been any violation of any other promise that God had given uh, by covenant to these people. Uh, this would not have been a violation of the Abrahamic covenant. God would in no way be setting aside any of those preceding promises. There would have been a delay, certainly, in the making of the nation. Uh, but the Lord would have been right, consistent with his own word uh, and his own unconditional covenant promise to Abraham. Had this nation been completely wiped out uh, there at the base of Sinai and started all over again with Moses. Uh, any lesser man, I say, uh, then Moses would have been quite eager to have this word from the Lord given to him, I will make of you a father of nations. Uh, but Moses here 
in a most unselfish manner, rejects that uh, statement, and he takes the Lord's uh, he takes the Lord's statement, "Let me alone," as the invitation uh, to offer this remarkable prayer. Let me just, I say, point out a few things uh, about this prayer. First thing that we say, and we touched on some of this last week, but let me just get a running start here with you. The first thing that we see about this prayer is that it was a mediating prayer. A mediating prayer. Uh, Moses was standing here as the mediator uh, between these people uh, and God. God had called Moses to be the prophet, one of the mediatorial offices. Moses was called to be that leader, that civil authority even, if you will, a mediatorial operation. And now as the mediator, that one that was standing between these people and a holy God, Moses, uh, begins to make his appeal unto the Lord. He was going to beseech the Lord to appease uh, the face of his God. Look at verse 11. Moses uh, besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth I uh, wrath wax hot against this people which thou brought out from the land uh, of Egypt with great power? and with a mighty hand, literally there to appease the fates of Jehovah. With boldness, with earnestness, Moses was here speaking to the Lord with perfect freedom, with perfect liberty. There was no hindrance. Uh, there was no obstacle between him and the Lord as face to face. Uh, he offered uh, this petition unto the Lord. Now, here is Moses. Was there a man like Moses, we are told, that was able to speak with the Lord mouth to mouth, face to face, in the very presence uh, of the Lord? Uh, and God had a hearing uh, here for Moses. It's a beautiful picture, but even there, I submit, it's but an imperfect picture uh, of the intercession that the Lord Jesus Christ has uh, and exercises in behalf of us, his people that one that is the very right hand of God, that one that is in the very presence of God, who constantly, face to face, in the immediate presence uh, of Jehovah, reasons and prays uh, for us, his people. Uh, no fear that he who prays for us there uh, will ever be unheard. Moses was heard, and I say this as great as an example of intercessory prayer that this is, uh, is but an imperfect illustration, an imperfect example of the power and the certainty of the intercessory work that Christ uh, exercises for us. Uh, second thing that I see here uh, is that it was a most unselfish prayer. Uh, I touched on this from that closing statement at verse 10, I will make of thee a great nation. Uh, Moses just, as it were, blows that off. Uh, it doesn't affect him at all to realize that he could have been uh, the father of a nation. He simply ignores that. Uh, and uh, exercises here and demonstrates such love for his people that the welfare of his people was more important than his own self-advancement uh, and his own place in history, as it were, testifying to the sincerity, uh, to the genuineness uh, of the motive here that he has uh, with uh, this prayer as he identifies himself so remarkably uh, with these people. Touched on this at the close of discussion last time, that amazing statement at verse 32. Uh, Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, there in that unfinished sentence, you can just see, it's, I say, easy enough for us to read uh, there, and we come to that little dash and uh, wonder why the sentence is left unexpressed. Uh, but just 
can we imagine as we uh, weakly can here uh, the emotion and the pathos and the uh, great intensity in the words and the argument of Moses here so taken up in this prayer uh, in behalf of his people that he couldn't even finish the sentence but God knew his heart uh, and I think it says something certainly great about prayer prayer is not just mouthing words uh, it's not just vocalizing sounds but God is able and God does read well the very heart and the very sentiment uh, of his people here's this great unfinished sentence uh, but what it says concerning the compassion, and the love, and the interest uh, that Moses had for these people. Lord, you blot them out, you blot me out. Uh, he's identifying, Moses was identified uh, with these people. We can't emphasize enough this particular point, the unity and the union uh, that Moses felt and that was indeed true between Moses and these people. The Apostle Paul uh, plays on that. Remember, and I think we've uh, looked at this statement, but let me just call it to your attention once again. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as the Apostle uh, looks to this particular time period in Israel's history, uh, and he focuses here upon uh, that special union that existed between Moses and the people. 1 Corinthians 10.1 Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. But that particular expression, they were baptized unto Moses. The idea of baptism here speaks particularly of that union uh, that exist between uh, between parties. They were baptized. They were so united. They were so identified to Moses that what became true of the one was true for the other. Uh, and together in union with Moses, they enjoyed all of that deliverance from Egypt. They enjoyed the great deliverance of the Red Sea. Uh, they knew that presence of God throughout that entire wilderness experience. They were baptized into Moses. And I say it's not uh, without significance that the Apostle plays here upon this inseparable connection uh, between Moses and the people. And Moses recognized that, and so he pleads, Lord, if you're going to blot them out, uh, then you blot me out. Uh, it's one and the same. Very unselfish. And as I said, uh, I think many times before, if, if I had to choose uh, two men, uh, in the scripture that identified more the Christ-likeness. Uh, it would be Moses and the Apostle Paul. Uh, for those two men willing to sacrifice themselves, uh, willing to be rejected themselves uh, by God for the sake of the people that they were ministering to. Uh, what a heart, what a compassion, uh, and what an unselfish interest that Moses here manifested uh, in this prayer effective mediation. And so it is that Christ identifies himself with his people. Uh, and, and here's the great uh, ultimate beauty of this. Say there's much in this prayer that I don't understand. Uh, but I very much can see this, that in union with Moses, in union with Moses, God would not destroy those people. And so it is in union with Christ. God will not destroy his people. Uh, we deserve it. They deserved it. How often and how many times have we 
deserved well the chastening hand of God uh, upon us. How often, even as believers, if you will, have we deserved uh, the wrath of God. But in union with Christ, in union with Christ, the wrath of God cannot touch us. Uh, in union with Christ, we are freed and we are exempt uh, from the wrath uh, of that holy God. Uh, and when you look at the great prayers of intercession that we have hinted at and recorded in the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Himself, uh, it's the union uh, that we have with Him. You follow the argument of John chapter 17. Christ is focusing there upon the union uh, that exists between he and his people, between him and his people. Uh, you, you look at the uh, statement in 1 John chapter 1 or chapter 2 uh, concerning the intercessor, the advocate that we have with the Father, uh, based upon his propitiatory work as he pleads for us, but it's in union with Christ uh, that we enjoy the success of the answers uh, to those prayers, an unselfish prayer. Uh, third thing that I see here, uh, it's a well-reasoned prayer. So well-reasoned prayer here. The argument uh, of Moses in this prayer uh, unto the Lord is remarkable indeed. Uh, he does not excuse the sin of these people. He doesn't deny the sin of these people. He acknowledges their sin and all of the demerit of it. But yet he argues uh, very strongly uh, and very well-reasoned with the Lord concerning uh, why God ought not to judge these people. First of all, he reminds the Lord uh, of redemption. Look at verse 11. He reminds the Lord of the redemptive act that he had already exercised, accomplished in behalf of these people. Moses besought the Lord as God, Why doth thy wrath wax hot against the people which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? He reminds the Lord of the fact that these are a redeemed people. He reminds the Lord of the exercise of divine omnipotence, the exercise of uh, that mighty hand of God that brought these people out uh, from the place of redemption. They are your people. Can you see what he says there? These are thy people. They're not my people. They are your people. You purchased these people. You redeemed these people. You delivered these people. And there is something about redemption. I think this is what Moses is arguing here. There is something about redemption that is irreversible. You see, There is something about God redeeming His people that uh, invariably and irreversibly puts them as the possession of God. And Moses cried here uh, that these are your people by virtue of redemption from Egypt. And I dare say that the Lord Jesus, when he intercedes for us, says that these are your people. These are my people. They are your people by virtue of redemption. And uh, again, look at that statement uh, in 1 John chapter 2, that we have the advocate with the Father. If we sin, yes, we're going to sin. But we have the advocate with the Father who? Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is what? The propitiation who is the propitiation uh, for the sins of the world, not just for the sins of the world, but for our sins. And it's not, I say, without reason, uh, and it's not certainly without significance, that in this great statement that draws our attention to that intercessory work, that advocacy work of Christ in behalf of His people, that the basis for the argument is the fact of propitiation. I have redeemed them. My blood has been shed. Your wrath has been satisfied. 
And on the basis of that propitiation, uh, Christ exercises his intercessory work uh, in behalf of uh, his people. There's something about redemption uh, that is absolutely irreversible. And Moses here argues that before the Lord. A second part of his reasoned argument here, uh, he reminds the Lord of his own glory. Reminds the Lord of his own glory. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. What are the Egyptians going to say? Lord, if you wipe these people out, yes, there's a justice there, but if you wipe these people out, if you destroy them here, what is the world? What are the Egyptians going to say? What are they going to think? You're going to be a source and an object of ridicule. Uh, and, and Israel's destruction would give the enemy reason for scoffing and reason for their own self-glorification. Uh, for the redeemed people to be lost. Uh, would be absolutely incongruous uh, with divine glory. Uh, your reputation is here at stake. Uh, your glory, uh, for the sake of your name, don't destroy this people. For a redeemed people to ultimately perish uh, would be a violation uh, of the glory of God. What would that say about God's power? What would that say about God's goodness and God's grace and God's love uh, if those that he redeemed, uh, he ultimately threw aside and they were ultimately condemned? Moses says, think about yourself here. Now, I say this is bold prayer. This is bold prayer. Here is Moses reminding God of what he had done in delivering these people, reminding the Lord of his own reputation. Your name is at stake here. Don't destroy these people for the sake of your own glory. And God indeed does act, and God must act uh, for His own glory. I'm not going to turn there. Uh, but again, take, take a read sometime through that, uh, that prayer in John chapter 17. Uh, it, it's a passage that I've referred to from time to time with you. Uh, I, I think perhaps the holiest place uh, in the entire Scripture. It's a passage that... Uh, I, I, I would love to preach. Uh, I tried to preach it uh, many times, but I, I come to it, and, and this is beyond me. Uh, and, and I can never get a handle on uh, what's going on in that in that passage to set it up even in a little sermon. Uh, it's a remarkable meditate through John chapter 17. It's holy. It's holy ground. But as you read through that chapter. As you read through that intercessory prayer of the Lord Jesus, see how often uh, reference is made to the glory of God, uh, to the glory uh, that Christ had before He came, that He was going to again experience, uh, and the great emphasis upon the glory. And here in this intercessory prayer, the great theme and the great argument of the Lord Jesus uh, concerns the very glory of God. Uh, and Moses here uh, gives us that uh, that example. Uh, there's the sincerity, uh, or the security, I should say, that we as the people of Christ can have, having been redeemed, the objects of God's love, we are not uh, and cannot be forsaken, uh, because that indeed would do despot to the very name uh, of a holy God. Uh, third thing that I see Moses reasoning here, uh, he reminds God of his covenant promise. 
He reminds God of his covenant promise. Here is an oath, uh, an oath that cannot uh, and will not be broken. Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it uh, forever. He reminds the Lord of his covenant promise. Now, as I said a moment ago, had these people been destroyed and God started all over again with Moses, uh, there would have been really no violation of that Abrahamic covenant and that Abrahamic promise. But Moses here unselfishly sees this people as the seed of promise. That seed that was being developed through whom and ultimately uh, from whom the Messiah was going to come. And he reminds the Lord, start thinking about it. I, I've defined this word remember for you who knows how many times. It's not that God had forgotten. Or it's not that God had forgotten that this covenant had slipped the Lord's mind. That couldn't happen. But to remember here is the idea of consciously and willfully thinking about something. And here again in the boldness of prayer, in the boldness of prayer, Moses is uh, imploring the Lord, start thinking about this covenant. Put your mind fixed upon this covenant promise. On the basis of that covenant promise, you cannot uh, and you must not destroy uh, this people. God's covenant word must be true. Uh, and indeed it will be true. Uh, all of the promises of God, and again, if we can just, and, and I've emphasized before how important it is to plug in all of the implications and all of the preceding uh, theological knowledge that we have about these covenant promises. At the heart of this was the promise of Christ. At the heart of this was the promise of Christ. And all the promises of God, therefore, Paul tells us, are yea and amen. All of the promises are yes, they are yes in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Uh, and pleading the covenant uh, is part of the argument uh, that God cannot ignore uh, in this intercessory prayer. And again, you look at John 17. And the covenant promise between the Father and the Son and between the Father and the people through the Son uh, is a constant theme in the argument of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as he prays so wonderfully and effectively uh, in that holy chapter. So we plead the covenant. Now, I say there's a well-reasoned prayer. There's a prayer that is based here upon the Word of God and taking the Word of God and, as it were, reminding God of what he says. It's a good lesson, an example for us uh, in, in, our, in our pray. Uh, so often our prayers are just fixed upon the circumstance. And they're fixed upon the immediacy of uh, the particular situation. Uh, here, here's the Lord ready to, to, to smite us. Lord, don't smite us. Well, I, well just don't do it. All right? we, we don't want you to do this. Uh, and, and, and that tends to be the nature of our argument. Lord, don't do this. Don't do this. But here is Moses. And this was a, this was a time of crisis, obviously. The Lord was about, remember, his nose had become red and it was ready to vent itself. The long-suffering of God was done with these people. Uh, so it's a time of urgent crisis. Uh, but Moses, I say with reason and with calculation and with argument based upon the word of God itself, uh, makes this appeal uh, unto the Lord. And the last thing that I say, about this prayer is that it was effectual. It was a prayer that was effectual. For God repented 
For God indeed repented. Look at verse 14. The Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto this people. That's what Moses had prayed for in verse 12. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Now let's make sure that we understand uh, the terminology that uh, occurs here. This is one of the uh, unhappy things, I suppose, concerning uh, how we read this word evil. We think of the word evil. Two words I want to explain here. I'm talking about evil and repent. Uh, the word evil, first of all, let's take care of this one. And we've addressed this before. Uh, you, you understand that this word does not necessarily have the idea of sin. Uh, we, we tend to use the word evil just as moral evil, moral wickedness. Uh, and indeed, this word does uh, refer to that in the Old Testament Scriptures. But most all of the uh, most all of the words for sin in the Old Testament have a non-theological, uh, a non-moral aspect idea about them. They are non-moral words that are then brought over and applied into the moral ethical arena to explain and to illustrate something about sin. Uh, for instance, the word that we see in the authorized version as sin uh, is that definition that you learned in Sunday school way back when you were kids. That sin is missing the mark. All right? Sin is a missing... Well, that's the word. Uh, and, and it's used uh, to describe those that could uh, shoot their arrows or sling their stones and not sin. They, they hit the target. All right? They hit the target. And it's used that way in the, uh, in, in the Scripture. Now, we bring that into the moral realm, in the ethical realm. It, it's a beautiful picture. If I say beautiful, it's a, it's a very graphic picture, perhaps I should say of what sin is, a missing the mark. Here is the standard of God's law, the standard of God's righteousness, the standard of God's holiness, and, and we don't hit it. Uh, we keep missing that standard, and so we sin. All right, we sin. All right, and that's right on down the line. Now, this word evil is a word that non-morally and non-ethically simply refers to something that is dangerous, uh, something that is harmful, uh, something that uh, would be disastrous or calamitous. All right, it's a calamity. Uh, so if a, you know, somebody got hit by a truck out here, that that would be uh, that would be an evil. All right, that would be a calamity. That would be a terrible tragedy. No, that's the word here. That's the word here. As it comes into the moral realm, uh, it describes then our sin as calamitous behavior. All right, when we commit this ethically and morally, it is dangerous. It is treacherous. It is calamitous behavior. But we have to be careful here uh, that we don't always insert the moral ethical idea into the word. Uh, and the authorized version tends to translate this word uh, quite, uh, quite consistently as evil. But not always, I say, can we interpret it as being sin. The psalmist says, for instance, uh, Yea, though I walk the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. He's not saying there, I'm not going to be afraid of sin. I'm not going to be afraid of breaking the law of God. No, I'm not going to be afraid of danger. I'm not going to be afraid of any harm or calamity or disaster that could come upon me because I'm confident of your presence. All right, now, having said that, the Lord here was going to bring an evil upon these people. And the evil was going to be smiting them in, in the wilderness. It's going to be the destruction, the judgment that God was going to bring upon these people. It was not morally wrong, obviously, uh, because God was going to do it. Uh, it was a just and 
uh, a righteous act, but it was a calamity and it was a tragedy and it was a disaster uh, that the Lord was going to bring. Same thing in Jonah, right? This is what uh, we read in the book of Jonah that uh, God repented of the evil that he was going to bring upon Nineveh. Didn't destroy the Ninevites. That would have been a calamity. That would have been a disaster. All right, that's the sense of the word here. Uh, so Moses is not accusing God here of sin. We have to understand that. All right, then the second word. Uh, the Lord repented uh, of the evil. Uh, now this word uh, is not the word that typically identifies evangelical repentance in the Old Testament. All right, this is not the word uh, when we're told to repent or turn from our sins. That's not the word. This is not the word. Uh, authorized version usually translates that word as turn. This is the word repent. It's an emotional term. Right? It's an emotional term uh, that speaks of uh, the sorrow, that speaks of the uh, grief associated with something, uh, and an alteration, therefore, of behavior. Uh, if I repent of something in this word, I'm sorry about it, I grieve about it, and then you don't do it. Uh, so it is an emotionally charged term. Now, we're going to talk a little theology here, uh, just for a moment. Uh, if you go back to the Confession of Faith and the time that we spent together there in our study of God particularly, uh, one of the things that we learn about God is that He is, number one, uh, pure spirit. All right? God is pure spirit. Uh, without body parts, all right? the Confession says that He is without body parts, uh, and without, I forget the exact wording of the confession here, do you have it? Uh, and, and without uh, emotion, without passion, maybe be the word that they use. Do you have that there? All right, there is but one true, one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Uh, immutable, immense, eternal, and a list there that goes on uh, a long time. All right, passions, emotions. All right, emotions. Uh, we, we say then that God is without emotion. Now we need to be careful here. All right, need to be careful here. Uh, we say passions or emotions in the sense that we typically think of emotion uh, as what? My emotion. We all have emotion. Even even I have emotion, which is contrary to popular belief sometimes. All right, I, I have emotions. Uh, and uh, so, some of you have more vivid emotions than I, but we all have emotions. But what affects our emotions is whatever this is within us that is influenced by something on the outside, right? I can be happy, uh-huh, what makes me happy? Not looking in the mirror, something else outside of me happens, good. oh, that makes me happy. Something bad happens, oh, now I'm sad. And I can be happy, and I can be sad, and I can be happy, and I can be morose, and I can be whatever else it is, right? I'm usually one of the other of those two with little extreme between uh, some of you you understand what I'm saying but it, it's I, I'm influenced something on the outside influences me I am affected and that does something to my emotions now that's where we avoid making that statement about God God and we're going to talk about this when we look at Exodus chapter 3 uh, God is unaffected all right God is unaffected. There is nothing outside of himself that affects him, that influences him to do this or to do that or to be this or to be that. God is infinite in terms of all of his being, part of which is then his immutability. All right? And here's where we have the 
the surface struggle here uh, in this kind of statement. We know that God is unchangeable. I'm the Lord. I change not. But I read here that God changed. Going to do this, and now he doesn't do that. Uh, what, what, what's going on here? All right. If God is unchangeable, if God is immutable, but yet I read something here that Moses was able to convince God not to do something that God said he was going to do, what, this, there's a little tension here. This is a little difficult. All right. uh, so, so what's going on? All right, now, I'm saying that God, first of all, is without emotion. I'm not saying that God does not have what we term as emotion in the sense of love, in the sense of joy. God has those things. But I want to avoid the idea of emotion as being that which fluctuates depending upon stuff on the outside of me. You understand what I'm saying? God is unaffected. He is absolutely independent. He is the only... He is the only, and this, this boggles the mind, doesn't it? He is the only independent thing, if I can use thing in a, in a generic sense here, uh, that exists. All right? Only God is independent. Some of you think you are independent. Uh, you're, you're, you're up the proverbial spout, right? There's nothing independent about you. Uh, you think you're an independent thinker. No, you're not. You're not an independent thinker here. Uh, we are all dependent. All right, some upon good things, some upon bad things, but we are all in one way or another influenced and affected by stuff and others and circumstances outside of ourselves. But God is absolutely unaffected. He is uninfluenced. He is what he is by virtue of his infinite, unchangeable, perfect character. All right, so have to understand that. Now, if that's true, if that is true, then what does it mean that God repented? How can that one that is unchangeable change? Now, let's be honest, that's a, that's a problem. All right? That's a problem for us. Now, how, how do we resolve uh, what appears to be this theological uh, tension? All right, now, this word repent, I say, is an emotional term. It is what we refer to. I'm going to give you a big word here. I'm going to give you a big word. Uh, but you're big people. Anthropopathism. All right? It is an anthropopathism. Big word. Uh, but it's extremely transparent. Anthropos is a Greek word. I want you to say it. Anthropos. Eh, good. Sound like my class, half dead. Anthropos. A Greek word that means man. Man. Pathos. Pathos is a Greek word that means emotion. Emotion. So, an anthropopathism is a human emotion. All right. It is a human emotion that is being applied to God. Uh, we give you another term here. We know a little more, perhaps, but uh, same, same idea. An anthropomorphism. All right. An anthropomorphism is a human anthropos, human uh, morphos, Greek word for form. It is a human form uh, that is being applied to God. Now, how many of anybody bothered back in verse 11, for instance? Anybody bothered by that statement uh, when Moses said to the Lord, out of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand you uh, delivered the people? All right. That didn't really bother us. All right. We know that God is pure spirit. What did our confession say? Uh, without body parts. All right. There's no body parts. God does not have a hand. He's pure spirit. How, how do we contemplate pure spirit? I, I say we can't. All right? We can't. There's something about pure spirit that absolutely defies human understanding. Uh, we, we don't, 
You know, if I ask you what would pure spirit, you know, close your eyes and contemplate pure spirit, and, and you get some ghost-like thing or something, right? Well, no, that's that's not it. All right, that's not it. Uh, pure spirit is pure spirit. I don't I don't have a clue. I'm going to confess to you, I don't have a clue uh, as to what pure spirit is. And anyone sitting here today thinks the day they do, you don't. All right, I'm just going to tell you right to your face, you don't have a clue. Uh, so oh, I got an idea. Well, your idea is wrong. All right. Uh, as soon as you can ID it, it's wrong. All right, that's the whole point. Uh, we can't we can't comprehend it. But yet, but yet, just as uh, I, I understand what a hand is, I know what a hand does. Hand can its function here. Uh, well, if I talk about the hand of God and we apply human body parts to God, uh, I, I don't interpret that to mean that God somehow has a hand that does not have a very distinct outline, right? Ghost-like hand. No, no, no. He's active. God has the ability to act and to work. His, his arm, the eyes of God. Uh, Habakkuk says that the, uh, the Lord is of purer eyes than to, to look at evil. Well, God doesn't have eyes. All right? Those are body parts. He doesn't have eyes, but He can see. All right? He can see. Well, for us, the vehicle of seeing is the eye. And so we can take, and, and God reveals Himself to us in ways that we can understand in ways that we can understand. So when I read about the eyes of God, I know that God can see. All right? Those are anthropomorphisms. right? We don't have too much problem with those. And anthropopathism is a human emotion that is applied to God to give us some understanding from our perspective. It helps to get some handle on what God is doing. Now, uh, here, here then is the beauty of this statement. The Lord repented of the evil. Now, obviously, it means that God didn't judge them as he said he was going to judge them. That God did not execute his wrath against them as he said he was going to do. He said he was going to and didn't do it. But why? Why? From the perspective of us, from the perspective of Israel, it appears that God changed. From our perspective. And God in His goodness and God in His grace reveals Himself to us in ways that we can comprehend. And this becomes one way of doing it. Bottom line, God, outside of Moses, all right, if I can go back to this, this argument, outside of Moses, these people could be destroyed. In connection with Moses, in union with Moses, they could not be destroyed. They could not be destroyed in identification with Moses. Now, can I put it this way? As we bring this to its theological aspect, there is a sense in which God's immutable decree is that those that are outside of Christ are judged are doomed, are under the sentence of divine wrath. Outside of Christ, man is under the sentence of divine wrath. In Christ, man is freed and man is liberated from that.